My name is Angelika Nussberger and I'm the Vice President of the European Court of Human Rights. At the same time, I'm also a law professor at Cologne University. The topic of my lecture is change and continuity in international human rights law. And I want to focus on the European Convention of Human Rights. How is it possible that what is okay today is no longer okay tomorrow? That is generally an intriguing question for international law, but it's even more intriguing for international human rights law. If standards are considered to be fundamental, shouldn't they also be eternal? Obviously, they are not. Similarly, there is a contradiction, like between black and white. Either there's change or there's continuity. But there is a tension, and there's tension in between. I would say uh, it's even a trademark of the European Convention on Human Rights that it combines both change and continuity. Let's take a concrete example. When we look back to the text of the European Convention on Human Rights, we will find there the right to life. But we also find an exception. And I quote it. No one shall be deprived of his life intentionally save in the execution of a sentence of a court following his conviction of a crime for which this penalty is provided by law. So, death penalty is allowed. When the Convention was elaborated in the late 1940s, early 1950s, it was just the time after the war. There were war criminals sentenced to death penalty. And death penalty was accepted in most of the European states and also worldwide. So handing down a death penalty and executing somebody was not considered to be a human rights violation. In the, at that time. Nowadays, about 70 years later, we consider death penalty not only as a human rights violation, but the prohibition of death penalty is one of the cornerstones of the European human rights protection system. A state allowing the death penalty could not even be a member to the Convention. Right to life is still right to life. But what it means and what are the exceptions is understood very differently in 1950 and in 2018. So we have to ask, do we have perhaps old human rights and new human rights and human rights of the Enlightenment, of the 19th century, of the 20th century and of the 21st century, traditional human rights, modern human rights and postmodern human rights? In this context now, I want to ask five questions. First, what creates the myth of eternity of human rights? What makes human rights durable? Second, why do they change? Third, are changes progress? Fourth, are there limits to change? And fifth, what remains if everything changes? So, the first question, what creates the myth of eternity or what makes human rights durable? I think first and most important, the first and most important characteristics of human rights is that they are unalienable rights. They are inborn, they cannot be taken away, they are part of human beings. This idea cannot change. 
and connected with this idea you find the path of like in words like it's always it's everywhere when you look at the text of the enlightenment uh, or the french revolution rights for all men at all times you always have this pathos the starting point is to make them durable and when we now look where they come from in the in in philosophy we see this idea of uh, being given something from above even. So we have some who root uh, human rights in divine law. They are given by God, so they cannot be changed by man. Or in philosophy, in the Enlightenment, natural law, we find the, um, the, uh, the idea of rational law, of something you can understand just by your reason. So uh, just to, to give an example, uh, the Austrian Civil Code even nowadays says in the, in the tradition of Kant, the German philosopher Kant, human rights are intelligible on the basis of reason. That is not, not our approach nowadays. Nowadays we codify human rights. But we codify them in a way that they should last. And when we codify them in international treaties, it gives them even some more eternal uh, uh, glamour, if you may say so. Already the way of codifying them, of bringing to, together the best lawyers at the time uh, of having solemn declarations makes human rights uh, different from normal, if we may so, normal laws. So there is a myth of continuity. At the same time, uh, what makes them durable or more durable than other laws is th their hierarchical status. Uh, in order to make them durable, we give them a privileged status in international law. Uh, international human rights are enshrined in international treaties. And as we know, in Article 29 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of the Treaties, it's written, I quote, a party may not invoke the provisions of its internal law as justification for its failure to perform a treaty. So, States cannot argue that the constitution or national law would contradict international law in order not to apply uh, international law. In this sense, international human rights law in an international treaty trump national law. We even try to give them more, um, this, more of this element of, of durability uh, with use kogans. Use kogan, this idea of having some norms that can uh, not be contradicted anywhere. Uh, it's, a, it's a long debate and an intense debate about the existence of use Kogans, but there are attempts to argue, or there are uh, approaches to argue, that the prohibition of torture, for example, or slavery, forms not only part of human rights codifications, but even of use Kogans. So, what I want to stress, they are on the top of the hierarchy in the law. And that is also underlined by form and procedure. So we have a double confirmation of, of human rights. First, we have the codification. So we have a compromise. We have an agreement on the codification of the text of the international treaty. And then it's ratified. So we have the second, con um, the second confirmation uh, on the national level. All that is always done with very large majorities and quite often in solemn declarations. But at the same time, we know treaties can be changed. If it's a treaty, a treaty can be changed. Um, the last uh, aspect I want to mention in this regard is the wording of human rights um, 
uh, codifications. Usually they are, very, they are very solemn words, like these are the fundamental freedoms, so fundamentals. It's the basis of everything else. It's a common heritage, this idea of long term. But when you lo look uh, at the preambles of international human rights treaties, especially the European Convention on Human Rights, you also find the idea of development. So it said it's, uh, the aim is an achievement of greater unity, maintenance and further realization are alluded to. It's seen as the first steps for collective enforcement. So there's also this idea that there could be some progress. And actually, when we look at the process of elaborating the European Convention on Human Rights in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, we see that the drafters were not happy with the result. They thought they could have gone further, they could have achieved something even better, because the main reasons were that it, um, the implementation mechanism was considered to be quite cumbersome with the commission at that time and the court as a second step that all has been abolished uh, long since. And also uh, they considered that the catalogue was more restrictive than the catalogue of human rights in the Universal Declaration. So even then, even if it was seen as something very important and durable, it was also seen that the process of uh, fixing human rights is more important and not only the result. So there we have both. We have the myth of continuity, the myth of eternity, and at the same time the myth of progress. So change and continuity, you see it already in the elaboration of these treaties. So I come to my second point. Why do human rights change then? If we look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it's one model, and this is a model which does not change. The Universal Declaration was uh, drafted in 1948, and it's the same now as it was in 1948. There are no amendments, there's no change uh, to the inter interpretation, it's still uh, abstract, so to say, everybody is free to read, to read the uh, Declaration in the way he or she wants. And that is also linked to the vague terms used in the UN Declaration. Just one example, when we say uh, no one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment and punishment, everybody will immediately agree. But when we start discussing what is inhuman, what is inhuman treatment, it gets immediately complicated. Just to give you one example out of the jurisprudence of my court, would a slap in the face of a minor would that be inhuman treatment or not? It changes probably in time what we uh, consider as an inhuman or degrading treatment. So this model of the Universal Declaration, which is only, in inverted commas, it's only a declaration, it's not a binding treaty, and it's, uh, there is no body to give authoritative uh, interpretation. We could compare it uh, to... Um, painting on the ceiling of a room. It's, it's nice to look upside, uh, to, to look up, um, and, and it's nice for orientation, but for the everyday work it might not always be helpful. So that's why the European Convention on Human Rights is a different model, very different model. There are amendments. There are no amendments to the basic text itself, but we have uh, many uh, protocols. By now we have 16 protocols, 14 are ratified and have entered into force, uh, which have been uh, amending the text. And we also have 
a body that is, um, uh, that is called upon to interpret the text. What is even more, to give an authoritative uh, and an authori authoritative interpretation to the text. And whenever you start interpreting a text, the meaning will change, the meaning will be adapted. That has been spelled out by the court explicitly in, the, uh, in some very important judgments in the 1970s. Uh, I just want to mention them. One is Tyra versus the United Kingdom, the other one is Marx versus Belgium. In Tyra, uh, the problem was that a boy had to be uh, beaten uh, with a stick by a teacher. It was a sanction that was previewed. And the question was if this is a degrading treatment. And in the other case, Marx versus Belgium, the question was if the uh, treatment of children born out of wedlock who were discriminated against in comparison to children who had uh, been born uh, during the marriage of their parents, if this di discrimination was acceptable or was a violation of the convention. And in both cases, physical punishment of children and um, discrimination of children born out of wedlock, the court somehow acknowledged that uh, attitudes and, and understanding had changed uh, between 1950 and 1970, now when they had to adjudicate the case. And in this context, the court developed what was called the doctrine of the living instrument. The court clearly stated that if it does not interpret the text as a living instrument, it will be a dead letter. So we have two types of changes now in the jurisprudence of the European Convention of Human Rights. One is what we could call the enlargement of the competence, like the interpretation, what are civil rights, where we have to guarantee a fair trial, and civil can be understood in a very narrow way, or it can be understood in a broader way, for example, including uh, social security rights. So with such sort of interpretation, just the scope of the application of the convention gets larger. The same is true for cases where um, the convention is applied outside, outside the territory of the member states. Uh, for example, in the Iraq war, uh, when, when it's, if I may say metaphorically, when the convention is in the backpack of the soldiers who exert jurisdiction or, or um, power outside uh, the home state, and then the court says, well, then there is jurisdiction and the convention has to be applied. So these are the enlargements of the competences um, uh, and, and of the interpretation of the convention in this sense, but that's not my topic today. What I'm interested in today is the change of substance, when we understand rights differently um, in the course of time. So in this sense, the same state action can first be considered okay from the point of view of the convention and compatible with the con convention. And at a later date, the court would say, no, this is not okay anymore. And this is now a violation of international law and of this treaty. So just let me give an example. The lifelong sentence to hand down, I'm not speaking anymore about death penalty, but now about lifelong sentence. So for murder in very many criminal codes, you find the sentence a lifelong uh, you find as a sanction a lifelong sentence. The question before the court has been, does an irreducible life 
prison sentence amount to inhuman treatment? Is it inhuman to incarcerate somebody without any hope, without any right to hope that at a later point in time he or she will be released again? When we look what the Commission, so the predecessor of the, uh, of the, the part of the control system of the European Convention before the reform, what the Commission said in 1978 on the basis of Article 3 of the Convention, it said it recognized that it would be desirable that there is something like a right to hope, a, a right to have the sanction revisited. But then it says, and now I quote literally, it finds no provision in the, of the Convention, including Article 3 invoked by the applicant, which can be read as requiring that an individual serving a lawful sentence of life imprisonment must have that sentence reconsidered by a national authority, judicial or administrative, with a view to its remission or termination." End of quote. So that was the status quo in the 1970s. Now let's look at a quite, quite a recent judgment, Winter versus the United Kingdom uh, in 2013. I quote once more, the court considers that in the context of a life sentence, Article 3 must be interpreted as requiring reducibility of the sentence. So, the court states, on the basis of the same text, just the opposite. Why? Why is that like that? It's also explained in the Winter Judgment, because there is a new understanding of punishment, what punishment should be. I quote once more the court saying, the emphasis in European penal policy is now on the rehabilitative aim of imprisonment, particularly toward the end of a long prison sentence. This idea of, of having a right to, uh, to hope in the context of life imprisonment has been further developed since then. In 2014, the court handed down the important judgment Trabelsi versus Belgium, where it applied the same to extradition cases. So, for a European country, it's no longer acceptable under the Convention to extradite somebody who might be sentenced to an irreducible life prison sentence in another country. By the way, a very important aspect in the relations between European states and the United States of America. The problem arose, if now the standard is changed, can those who had been, whose cases had been adjudicated under the old standard now come once again to the court and have their judgments reviewed? and get a different judgment from the European Court of Human Rights. So, there we see changing the interpretation creates problems. This case, this question was brought to the court in the case Harkins versus the United Kingdom. It was an extradition case and an extradition to the United States. And the court had first said that there is no problem with this extradition uh, under the Human Rights Convention. And now, in 2017, Harkins came again to the court and asked to change, to review the judgment because of the changes. But the court says no. And I quote the reasoning. The court's case law is constantly evolving. And if these jurisprudential developments were to permit unsuccessful applicants to reintroduce their complaints, Final judgments would continually be called into question by the lodging of fresh applications. This would have the consequence of undermining credibility 
and authority of those judgments. Moreover, the principle of legal certainty would not apply equally to both parties. So here now we see the tension. On the one hand, we have a new penal policy in Europe. The court is open to apply these uh, penal policy and to reinterpret the convention. On the other hand, we have the value of legal certainty. So the court reflects these, this tension very clearly in its jurisprudence. Uh, may I quote once more the court, uh, I would call it uh, almost a credo of the court in this context. So it says, while it is in the interests of legal certainty, foreseeability and equality before the law, that the court should not depart without good reason from precedents laid down in previous cases, a failure by the court to maintain a dynamic and evaluative approach would risk rendering it a bar to reform or improvement. And then it continues, it is of crucial importance that the convention is interpreted and applied in a manner which renders it practical and effective, not theoretical and illusory. End of quote. So, on the negative side, we see that there is a danger of creating inequalities and endangering legal uh, certainty. So that might be seen as injustice if cases are adjudicated in a different way at different times. And on the positive side, we see this openness for social change. Just to give you a few more uh, important examples for such changes. Article 9 has only in 2011 been interpreted as um, allowing conscientious objection. So uh, the right to refuse military service for religious reasons was granted under Article 9 only in 2011, while before such cases were seen as not well-founded. Article 8 was only in 2002 interpreted as granting the right to change the birth register for persons having undergone gender reassignment. Before as well, these cases were uh, considered not to be well-founded. Or Article uh, 4, Protocol 7, Nibis in Edom, the problem of having double sanctions, um, First, it was not considered to be, uh, as a problem to have an administrative penalty and a criminal uh, penalty at the same time, like in tax cases, it happens often. And in the case Zalatauchin versus Russia in 2005, this jurisprudence was changed fundamentally. Or last uh, important example, the jurisprudence of Saldus. Uh, it's about the right to have a lawyer from the very first moment of the criminal procedure uh, that was decided in 2008 and has been applied ever, ever since. Even more interesting are changes of the very philosophy of human rights. So uh, in the beginning and, and also when we look back to the sources uh, in the Enlightenment, the idea was to protect the individual against interferences of the state. But the new development then in interpreting the convention was to turn it around and to require the state to interact, to do something, not to refrain from acting, but to be active. That was called a positive obligation. And with this development, sometimes we can have a right, we can see a right uh, or we can see a, um, 
the context of a case, uh, a case in two, uh, in two different ways. The right to family life can require the state not to do anything, not to take a child out of the family, for example, in a situation when um, there is danger that the uh, parents might mistreat the child. So the right to family life might be interpreted as leaving the family together, not to interfere by the state. But you can turn it the other way around and you can say there is a positive obligation of the state to interfere in order to secure the rights of the child. When we look at all these changes, sometimes we also see that they go a little bit back and forth. So uh, it, it might seem to a certain extent as trial and error. So uh, the jurisprudence Salata Uchin versus Russia, Nebisin Idem, uh, I, I just mentioned it, it has been changed slightly uh, and, and readapted in the, in the case AB versus Norway later on. Or the uh, uh, Saldo's judgment about the uh, right to have a lawyer from the very first moment and has, has been first opened up even more. Uh, say, first it was said that only if the confession given without a lawyer is then used in the judgment and is a decisive element, that is a human rights violation. Later on in uh, Diana versus Turkey, it was developed first and it was said that even if the confession is not used or even if the, um, if the accused is silent, and has no lawyer. That is already sufficient to find a violation of the convention, of a, a, a violation of fair trial. And in Ibrahim, in a terrorist case, this standard was once more developed first and it was said, okay, that is uh, an important factor in a, in a procedure, but still we always have to look at the trial as a whole, if the trial as a whole was unfair. So there are nuances and developments in, in the jurisprudence of the court. So what we can say, what we can say as a sort of a summary, human rights are being changed and they are being interpreted in a dynamic way. So with that, we, I come to my third question. Are these changes progress? I would say um, that are very different worldviews, the Enlightenment, and that's once more where the uh, human rights uh, have been put on the table for the first time in a very clear way, uh, coming from the Western world, there is, behind this idea, there is an idea of progress, of a development towards progress. Just to quote the German philo philosopher Hegel, he said that world history is progress in the consciousness of freedom, a progress which we must recognize as, as necessity. So, yes, in this sense, the idea is that we get better and better, and that's also what I said you find in the preambles of most human rights treaties. On the other hand, we also have the idea of cycles, that we go back and forth, and it's not going in one way only. Uh, when we look at the development of human rights laws in the decades, we can clearly say that there are more rights for the individual, and, and the rights of the community are quite often seen as less important. There is more emphasis on the pursuit, what is called the pursuit of happiness, there's also more acceptance to untraditional models of life, and there is less emphasis on punishment and sanctions. I think these are general trends we can observe in the last uh, decades. 
Is that always progress? I think that is seen um, in different ways. It's controversial. Uh, the, uh, the court in Strasbourg is uh, under, very often criticized. Um, for example, it's criticized for instrumentalizing human rights for specific purposes, for lobbying. Uh, it's considered to be an undemocratic decision-making. It's often said it's too much of a good thing. It's criticized as being micromanagement of national societies. And it's said that all that, what the court has seen as developments, is far away of what was intended originally. I think what we can call progress in any way is the discovery, if I may say, the discovery of the individual and the fact that the society is composed of individuals who have their unalienable rights. But of course, there's a very delicate balance. I would see it as a sort of a seesaw. On the one side, you have the community. On the other side, you have the individual. And it's always necessary to find a balance between the two. And if it's only going to one side, it's not balanced. On the other side, it's not balanced as well. So uh, when you look at the text of the convention, we have the rights and we have the restrictions of the rights in the uh, for the community. And this balance has just to be upheld and progress might be just to, to have a very good balance, to uphold such a very good balance. Nowadays, we can see it uh, very clearly in the fight against terror. So on the one hand, we accept these unalienable rights and even those who commit terrorist attacks must have those rights. Uh, and and uh, if the community did not grant these rights, it would um, lose its, its self-esteem and give up the civilizational standard it has, uh, it has um, achieved. On the other hand, the protection cannot go so far that the fight against terrorism is not possible anymore. So there, the court has been called upon to find a, a, a balance quite often I just uh, want to mention the case Ibrahim versus the United Kingdom, which is about the right to a lawyer, which I said before, uh, where the court really tries to find such a good balance in a very difficult context. So to summarize, um, I think progress or the idea of progress is a driving force in the development of human rights. But we have to be clear that more is not always better and we always have to see also the aspect of legal security and reliability of what is called fundamental rights. So with that, I come to my fourth point, are changes limited? I think, yes, there are limits to changes uh, if you don't want to give up the core of a human rights instrument. And generally, the limits fall together with the wording of the provisions. I just want to give you one example. Once more, the right to life, I have quoted it already quite frequently. The right to life in the Convention is one of the most important rights. And in the case Britty, whether the United Kingdom, the question was if assisted suicide is allowed. And in this context, the applicant argued that the right to die is a part of right to life. It should have also the negative side of right to life should also be enshrined in the wording, should be a right after on the basis of the convention. And there the court said, no, that goes too far. You cannot turn around a right and claim just the opposite. 
and uh, there is no right to die guaranteed in the Convention as such. I won't go into the details that you can find perhaps or you can discuss such cases under Article 8, but just to say that the court said right to life is not including, does not include right to die. So there is, uh, the wording gives um, limits uh, for interpretation and of course, of course all the methods of interpretation the court is bound by. So in this sense we have to say yes, the wording of uh, the uh, International Law Treaty of the European Convention of Human Rights does have a very specific meaning for the interpretation and the interpreter is basic, has to stay within the wording given, uh, uh, in the wording of the text. So with that I come to my fifth and last point to the question what remains. Uh, I think uh, whatever you change uh, there has to be a core and uh, this core is enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, as I said before, it's like the nice painting in the ceiling, but for the interpretation of the European Convention on Human Rights, it's still, um, these universal rights should be upheld, whatever interpretation is given. Or to, to come back to the very classical text, uh, you all probably know it's almost like a, uh, like a poetry, um, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That is probably the very core that always has to be remembered. Equality, life, liberty and pursuit of happiness. And whatever you interpret, it has to have this as a, as a core. So I would say change and continuity of human rights is like a song you love. The melody can, can change a little bit. The text can change. A refrain can be added. The rhythm can change. The speed. You can invent variations. But you still need the core, the basic musical idea. If you do not recognize the original melody anymore, it's no longer the song you love. So human rights can change. But the basic idea, the protection of the dignity of the individual, has to be visible despite all changes.